Crossings podcast community. This week's teaching is called Owning Jesus and is part four in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Molly Conaway on October 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening. Morning. How are you? Thanks for being here. I need everyone who has been here before and knows the ongoing smell issues that we've had in the square room to take a big, deep breath. What do you smell? Nothing. It's great. Yeah, thanks, Raphael. Raphael showered. Um, yeah, wow. We need to make sure the floor market square people here that they got an applause. All right. Um, we are, as Caleb said, continuing in a study of the Gospel of Luke. So if you don't know, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell some of the same stories. Uh, they tell some different stories. And they definitely tell all the stories differently. And we are in week four of Luke's telling of the stories. Um, we have heard some of these stories countless times in our lives. Uh, some of us are hearing them for the first time. And all of us are all over the place when it comes to faith and belief about God and about Jesus. But we are here studying Luke in hopes to enter into this text trying to be surprised by the Jesus that we find. If you were here two weeks ago, or if you've been keeping up on the podcast, you may remember that Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter two took baby Jesus to the temple and they were met by an old man named Simeon who among other things looked Mary in the eyes and said that this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This prediction, this warning had to stay with Mary as things played out for her boy. Uh, Keep this prediction in the back of your mind as we enter into the story today. Today our study includes Jesus' first sermon, at least the first one that we are given. Um, I don't know, many of you were probably not here when I gave my first sermon, my first teaching. It was about 10 years ago. It was when we used to do um, the teachings from up on the stage. I I don't remember much, but I remember I was talking about God's anger. I was so nervous, um, and I had a mug of tea that was on like a stool, and then like the very beginning of the teaching, like I smacked, like the tea went everywhere, and I just like stared, and everybody stared back at me for, it was, felt like a long time. And then somebody like awkwardly got up and went and got paper towels, and we cleaned it up. I mean, it was really awkward. Um, Today's story of Jesus' first sermon doesn't say that he spilled an entire mug of tea, um, but it was about as awkward. Well, actually, no, I think it was probably more awkward than that. Here's what it says. We're in Luke chapter four, starting in verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is from Isaiah 61, by the way. 
And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? So after Jesus had spent 40 days facing the devil in the wilderness, he heads to his hometown synagogue. If you grew up in a church, people like to talk about their home church, which like, is kind of weird if you think about it. Like For people who don't know what you're talking about, like when does your home church stop being your home church? And like, when can you get a new home church? Either way, Jesus heads to the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath day. It was his regular practice, this says. Uh, we ought to continue paying attention to a Jesus who was deeply formed and committed to the practices of his Jewish faith. In this, Jewish affirms the Sabbath and the scriptures and the synagogue. Nothing about what Jesus does here in this story goes against any of that. And as a normal part of the services in the synagogue, different scriptures would have been read, different prayers would have been prayed. Typically, would someone would give a short talk afterwards. So it's not weird that Jesus reads the scroll, gives the scroll back, and then gives a little talk. And in this first sermon uh, that Luke wants us to hear, Jesus positions himself alongside the prophet Isaiah, alongside Isaiah's prediction about the ways God would bring good news to the poor and set the captives free and restore sight to the blind. That whatever was holding people down, God intended to lift up. And Jesus said that actually, today the scripture has been fulfilled and you're hearing it. That something about this prediction was becoming especially true today. And he talks about the year of the Lord's favor. You can look at this again, we'll bring it back up. Those in the synagogue would have known the reference of the year of the Lord's favor. He was referring to the year of Jubilee. This was a practice that was supposed to happen every 50 years where some really big social economic practices were supposed to be upheld. Uh, Those who had been enslaved or oppressed were literally supposed to be given freedom. Prisoners were supposed to be released. Everybody's debts were supposed to be forgiven. It was supposed to be a year of great relief for God's people. And Jesus told the crowd that day that this relief and this freedom that comes with the year of Jubilee, this chance at a new start, this chance at a new life, was so truly about to be the way things would be that God's promises were so truly coming true And it begins here and it begins today. And we can't really tell, but maybe Jesus implied that it begins with him. And we gotta stop real quick and notice a couple things. Um, For those who have heard this story and know where it goes, I need us to like stop the tape that's playing. And apparently I'm only talking to people old enough to know like stopping a cassette tape is like a thing. Um, Because if you look at it, the hometown crowd in the synagogue isn't like mad at least not at this point. Often, if you've heard this story, if the tapes are playing, you know or you've you've heard the story say something like, Jesus spoke to his hometown crowd. Jesus told them that he was like the Messiah or the Savior, and they were mad about it because how dare that twerp Jesus that we all saw him be grown, grown up call himself the Messiah. I mean, like, isn't that Joseph's kid? 
And the tapes that play tell us the Jews just couldn't handle this, so they got angry and ran him out of town. But, but look at it again. You can go to the next one, Jen, if you want. Jesus never says he's the Messiah here. If he identifies with anybody, he identifies with the prophet Isaiah and the spirit of the Lord being upon him, which wouldn't have been a super abnormal thing for people to do. What happened was Jesus inspired them and gave them a vision about the way God's jubilee, God's setting people free, was underway, like it really truly was going to happen. It says the people loved it. They spoke well of him. They were amazed and excited about his words and this expectation. At this point, everyone's fine. And I wanna zoom out real quick. Uh, Jesus' sermon that comes from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If I was directing, if this was a movie and I was directing the scene, this is the scene, this is the part where I'd flash back. Do you remember what Mary, Jesus' mother, said when she found out she was pregnant with him? The Mary's Magnificat is how you might know it. She said this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. I don't know about you, but the message that Jesus was trying to get across in his first sermon in the synagogue sounds an awful lot like Mary's prayer when she discovered she was pregnant with him. And this might be totally off the rails, but I like to imagine that Jesus first learned what it means to bring good news to the poor and to lift up the lowly, to lift up what was holding people down from the songs and the stories that he heard from his mother. And then I'd like to flash back to the scene of Simeon telling Mary that this child would be opposed by many and that it would pierce her soul and after 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness facing darkness, he had some things to say. Things that would begin to fulfill Simeon's predictions about the rising and falling of many, about the way he would be opposed. And what happens is that Jesus, not the congregation, goes on the offense. <clears throat> Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you do in Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet, again, see here that Jesus identifies himself with a prophet, is accepted in his hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow in Zarephath and Sidon. There were also many with a skin disease in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And then I imagined things to get very quiet in the synagogue. 
I imagine Jesus' mug of tea to fall over and like nobody helps him out. Jesus first accused the crowd of being skeptical about him. I mean, maybe Jesus was very good at reading the room because according to Luke, no one actually said anything to make Jesus like lose his mind. It's like Jesus saw the faces of the people in front of him as he was talking about God's healing and restoration and he saw prove it written on their faces. So he starts throwing punches. And what was going on in Jesus' mind and why Luke tells the story the way he does is a good question, but Jesus doubles down. And he doubles down by recalling a story of when there was hungry women here in Israel who had lost their husbands and there was a drought and there was a famine for three and a half years. God didn't send the prophet to them. God sent the prophet up north to a widow in Sidon. And Jesus recalled a time that there were a lot of lepers who were miserable here in Israel. But the prophet didn't heal any of them. Instead, the prophet healed Naaman the Syrian. Israel was struggling, and God sent his prophet to a widow who was a stranger in every sense of the term. Israel was struggling, and God sent a prophet to a leper, an unclean stranger who was also the leader of the enemy's army. They were not Jewish, they did not speak Israel's language, they did not worship Israel's God, yet God gave them priority access? Jesus gets everyone so wound up because he talks about the divine relief that God brought and was going to bring in the midst of everyone's heavy lives and heavy burdens, which would have been fine if God had helped Israel first, but that's not what God did. Jesus reminded them that God had a track record of blessing the strangers first as a way to remind them that God did not belong to them. They didn't own God. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way, which is super like mysterious. I don't know if there was some like Star Wars thing. I don't know what was happening. Like he passed in the midst of them, I'm not really sure. This isn't launching a story. We need, to, we need to be clear. This isn't launching some ultimate story about Jesus and his battle with the Jews. Not all Jews would have been worked up about this, about what Jesus said, but Luke wants us to know that this wasn't the crowd you wanted to mess with when it comes to the way God ordered things. This crowd was maybe a tougher crowd. History tells us that the Romans had a hard time controlling Galilee. This crowd believed the, what they believed because that's just how things were. So you get hometown kid in Galilee telling them that God's signs and wonders would be given preferential treatment to people outside of them. Barbara Brown Taylor says that they were not furious because Jesus had made special claims for himself. They were furious because Jesus had taken a swing at their divine privilege and he had used their own scriptures to do it. In the chapter before this, uh, Jesus is tempted and the devil invites Jesus to throw himself off a cliff. In this story, the crowd threatens to throw Jesus off a cliff. I don't know if I were Jesus, I might like start finding towns without cliffs. 
the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's what Jesus did. In the section immediately following this, the whole thing actually parallels this scene. Luke leads us immediately into a section of three mini stories, three vignettes, about where Jesus goes and does exactly what he said he would do in the synagogue. Starting in verse 33, in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. It's October, who doesn't love a good demon story? And he cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Then the demon, throwing the man down before them, came out of him without doing any harm. They were all astounded and kept saying to one another, what kind of word is this? That with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out? The ancient world didn't really know what to do um, with the whole demon thing. I mean, our world doesn't really know what to do with the whole demon thing. Um, It's true that the ancient world allowed for more enchantment than maybe we do now. There was a greater acceptance of the mysteries of the universe, unknown forces that seemed to take over people, which included their mental, mental and physical states. Um, ben Witherington and Amy Gillivine say how one in antiquity, so how one in ancient times, distinguishes among miracle or medicine or magic is often an act of perception. What is miracle to one person is magic or medicine to another. One helpful test is cost. Medicine and magic require payment. Free health care is the miracle. Setting the captives free is exactly what Jesus said was part of the deal, and that includes those who were held down, held captive by their demons. And something interesting to note here is the way Jesus was misunderstood and kicked out of his hometown, the people who were supposed to know him the best, and he goes straight to meeting a demon, like probably the most strangest of stranger, the most foreignest, is that a word? Probably not. The most foreignest of foreigner. I'm going to say it. And yet the demon knows Jesus of Nazareth have the power to give life and to destroy. The demon knows Jesus to be the Holy One of God. I wonder how often the insiders totally miss the power of God that the strangers recognize immediately. And the scene sets the stage for a Jesus that confronts the powers, be it demons or sick people or sick governments or anything else that possessed and controlled and held people down. And Luke tells us that Jesus started picking up popularity here. Let's keep going, verse 38. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. Another one. As the sun was setting, all those caring for any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Moreover, demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. 
but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. If you're interested in like literary structure stuff, um, there's a parallel here, it's loose, but it connects what happens in the hometown synagogue with what happens immediately after. A parallel of what Jesus says with what Jesus did. And what Jesus said and what Jesus did communicated God's priority for freeing those who had been trapped by poverty and sickness and oppression. And it had seemed to the people of the synagogue of Nazareth that God had God's priorities kind of backwards or upside down. Some, not all folks, found this upside down backwards priority thing of giving preferential treatment to the stranger and the poor and the sick to be threatening. I wonder if it's something that we find threatening as well. Our section of the story ends like this. At daybreak he departed and went into a deserted place and the crowds began looking for him. And when they reached him, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he continued proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. So this image that we have, um, do you get it? It's like Luke, and then there's like a castle, but it's like upside down. Got it, okay. Somebody said it looks like, mac like a macrame, like wall hanging, so I'm waiting for somebody to do that, okay? But when we see this, when we grasp this idea of like an upside down castle, an upside down kingdom, an upside down way things work, it kind of should start to like make us squirm a little bit. Cause like, oh, preferential treatment to the poor and like, free healthcare like to the most unhealthy and like actually like healing restorative like justice systems that's pretty political the church doesn't want to be political our faith isn't just about all of this but it has to include this to separate Luke 4 from a social political context would not be an accurate reading of Luke 4. To separate Jesus' words and healings from a social political context would not give us an accurate understanding of the God's kingdom. And the social political context, when all this happens, was a context of power and control and greed and oppression. You know, there's pressure every week um, to tell these stories in like new and interesting and creative ways. I had a hard time doing that for this one. How do you say again that at the center of our faith is a God whose attention is particularly cued in to the poor and the stranger and the hurting, the one on the brink of despair, the prisoner, the refugee, the traumatized, the great-grandchild of the traumatized, the addict, the ones on the outside, the ones who should know better. Basically, the people we are most uncomfortable helping, the people we spend the most time arguing about whether or not we should help them, we serve a God who says, this, this is my purpose, actually. 
Nadia Boltzweber is a Lutheran priest. She says that maybe here when Jesus talks about restoring sight to the blind, maybe he's talking about actual physical blindness. Maybe he's also talking about forever changing the way we see those whose history and abilities and life choices differ from our own. Maybe it's allowing us to see ourselves as God sees us so that we see there really is no longer a them, there's only an us. Would you pray with me? God, many of us are still here, still participating in this faith thing because of the way your story is so oriented towards the restoration of brokenness, towards healing of the sick and raising up those who have been most held down in our world. And still, participating in this work can be hard. So God, forgive us for what we've done to continue to further a kingdom of power and control and oppression. Forgive us for all we failed to do. Release the demons that try to get at us too. Would you heal the ways we've become blind too? Would you remind us again and again that it is for the poor and the hurting and the lost and the lonely and the sick that you've come? Would you help us know how to do the same? It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.